Good evening and welcome. I'm Father Mark Foreman. I'm president of the University of Portland. It's my great pleasure to welcome you all here this evening. Uh, it is truly wonderful to be part of the legal community for the evening, and uh, you are welcome on this campus anytime. I was just thinking, as I see our own general counsel, Andrea Barton, here, I thought, Andrea, it just brings me so much comfort to know that I have the protection and guidance of hundreds of legal minds. <laughs> Let us begin with a prayer. Let us bow our heads and pray for God's blessing. Gracious and loving God, as we gather this evening with your Holy Spirit in our midst, send your light and hope and guidance and wisdom to all who are here. We offer our prayers in a special way tonight for those who seek and administer justice in all its forms. We pray for attorneys, for judges, for those who create laws, for those who apply them, review them for students of law, for all whose labors rest on the virtues of right reason and prudence and equity. Be with us in our company tonight, bless our conversation, the community we share, our honored guest, Abbot Jeremy. Let the nourishment of the food we are about to receive strengthen us for generous service of Jesus Christ, who is the source of our dignity and justice and peace. We ask this as we do all things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Bon appétit. Good evening, everybody. I'm Father Charlie Gordon. Uh, my colleague, Dr. Karen Eichler, and I direct the Garaventa Center for Catholic Intellectual Life and American Culture here at the University of Portland, and we're your hosts this evening. You've already met the president of our university, uh, Father Mark Porman. We're also honored to have with us this evening the university provost, Dr. Tom Green. And while Archbishop Sample uh, couldn't be with us this evening, uh, we are uh, graced this evening by the presence of Archbishop Vlasny and Bishop Peter Smith. You might like to know a little about some of the undergraduates who are here this evening. Some are members of the Blue Key Honor Society, and others are faith and formation ambassadors in uh, each of the residence halls on campus, and, and they are here as the personal guests of Father Porman. I want to thank our friends in the University of Portland Development Office for all their assistance, and, and thanks too to Sarah Nuxall, of the Garaventa Center, whose logistical genius made this event happen, and I'm sure that... And we are grateful, as always, to the esteemed members of the Red Mass Planning Committee, whose, whose names were listed on your invitation. In company so distinguished, there is a temptation to go on with acknowledgments and introductions indefinitely. Uh, since that is impossible, uh, 
Let me simply give way to a member of the Red Mass Planning Committee who has known tonight's speaker for more than 50 years and who will introduce him this evening. Please welcome Steve Engler. He stole my first line. It's okay. When I first met Abbot Jeremy 52 years ago, I had no idea that one day I would be introducing him as an international theological rock star. <laughs> now his resume is so long that I'm going to try to just give you a few highlights of it. First, he received the Johannes Quaston Medal for Excellence in Scholarship and Leadership in Religious Studies from the School of Theology at Catholic University of America, one of the most prestigious awards in the country. He has numerous books, 13 to be exact, two of which I urge you to take a look at if you have an opportunity. <laughs> One of which is What Happens at Mass, and the other, Amongst Alphabet. Both of them are excellent. The others are written in French and German, but have at it if you wish. <laughs> he has articles, he has speeches, he has uh, a number of appointments that have been internationally recognized. I'll cover them briefly. Uh, for three years, he was the theological consultant to the Bishops' Committee on the Liturgy for the United States Conference for Catholic Bishops. You know how the words changed? He was involved in that. Um, his current work includes being appointed by... Pope John Paul II as a consultant to the Congregation for Divine Worship for five years. Uh, that appointment was renewed by Pope Benedict in September 2010. And in May 2011, he was appointed by Pope Benedict to a term as the consultant to the Pontifical Council for the Promotion of the New Evangelism. He is a common uh, name in Rome, where he has spent six months a year for many of the past, at least for the past decade or more. And if you remember, I told you about his books. Uh, he wrote four books on a sixth, or excuse me, a fourth century Christian monk and ascetic called Evagrius Ponticus. I thought maybe I should just at least take a look at the guy and see what he's about. Turns out he's quite quotable. And as I'm going through his quotes, it turns out that he has one that clearly was intended for trial lawyers. And it goes like this. First of all, pray to be purified from your passions. Trial lawyers, keep a level head. Secondly, pray to be delivered from ignorance. Know your case. Third, pray to be freed from all temptation and abandonment. Stay focused and don't give up hope no matter how bad the trial's going. 
There was another one, happy is the man who thinks himself no better than dirt, but I couldn't touch that one. <laughs> so, tonight, Father or Abbot Jeremy is going to be giving us a talk on a monk's perspective on happiness in a troubled world. Please join me in welcoming Abbot Jeremy Driscoll. Thank you, Steve, and uh, thank you, Father Poorman. Uh, and thanking you, I thank the whole university and the center for the honor of this invitation. I'm so pleased to be able to speak to you and to speak to the legal community and, and all the other people uh, who have come here tonight. Uh, the topic of my reflections for you were proposed to me uh, by uh, the center when they invited me to come. And we just honed the title down to what I was asked uh, to think about. And it's this, uh, a monastic proposal for happiness in our troubled times. Saint Benedict, with the monastic rule that he crafted in the first half of the sixth century, is considered the father of Western monasticism. And Benedict's monasticism is considered the seedbed and driving force of all that is healthy and wise in the culture of the Middle Ages and beyond. For those who study history, the genealogy of this pedigree is not really in dispute. But alas, it is not much understood anymore by most people in our times. An awful lot of water has flowed under the bridge between the best of the Middle Ages and our own times. Even so, to deny that an unbroken thread still connects those distant times to our own would be a profession of historical ignorance, or worse, a declaration, however unwitting, of despair. It's prejudice of our own epic that the Middle Ages have little to offer us, much less something from the sixth century. But that's a prejudice. And at least our epic is in principle in favor of overcoming prejudices. So let's see if we could overcome an instinctive prejudice against the past and its lost wisdoms. They may be useful for our present predicament. I have 20 or perhaps 25 minutes to speak with you about a complicated question that I have thought about and tried to live for more than four decades. So I must cut to the chase. I don't want to offer a history lesson. Rather, I want to share with you, however briefly, how I think St. Benedict's 6th century monasticism offers gently, as an invitation, a critical, fresh, new orientation for how we might confront the big life questions posed to us. 
by the swiftly shifting landscapes of our cultural context. Shifts that seem to be provoking unprecedentedly aggressive and disoriented responses. The patient is sick, I think. Let me try to describe him. I'm talking about all of us and no one in particular. If I were to talk about any one of us in particular, well, we might find on a sliding scale from one to 10, people that are doing more or less pretty well. But no, I'm talking about what we look like as a culture, as a mass of people moving around our cities, our farmsteads and our globe. I'm talking about how we relate to one another, what we think about, how trends move us, what we are afraid of, how we drive our cars, what we eat, how busy we are, what we act like in boarding planes. That mass of people is a sick patient. And every one of us participates in the pathology on a sliding scale. Benedict's vision of monastic life is an antidote to the pathology. It brings health to the individual and it can contribute to the health of the culture as a whole. Very early on in the prologue of his holy rule, St. Benedict urges, uses the words of a psalm to address the would-be monk. And he places those words in the mouth of God. He describes a scene that very much fits as a description for our own times. He says, quote, seeking his workmen in a multitude of people, the Lord calls out to him and lifts his voice, saying, Now, before I tell you what the voice of the Lord says, <laughs> note the scene where the voice sounds. It is the Lord seeking an individual in the midst of a multitude. I've just outlined the multitude of our own troubled culture, what I described as people moving around the globe. This is where the Lord's voice sounds. What does he say? He says, I'm quoting again, is there anyone here who yearns for life and longs to see good days? Now isn't that the question? It's a good question, whoever poses it. Who doesn't perk up in hearing it posed? And yet for St. Benedict, it's God who's posing it. And when I ponder on this fact, on, on this grace, I can't help but hear sometimes a tone almost of bewilderment in the voice of God as he gazes on the beautiful beings he created in his own image and likeness. And when God says, is there anyone here who yearns for life and desires to see good days, it is almost as if we can hear him continue 
saying, there doesn't seem to be. <laughs> in any case, not in the multitude, qua multitude. God's heart is broken. And God goes seeking among the multitude someone, anyone, who yearns for life. What makes me think that the multitude is not well? I think you see it in the faces of so many when we are out and about. Manners, clothing, gait, styles of driving, and hours upon hours spent in virtual worlds where with impunity we can be scathingly ill-mannered or immoral and held unaccountable. And if you don't see much of that where and how you live, good. But someone somewhere not far from you, it's happening. And you are only, for the moment, preserved from having to see it. And also, somewhere not far from you, the weak, the lonely, the unlovely, are passed over quickly by the multitude that for present is strong enough to gather greedily some of the fleeting pleasures of this life. And in the midst of this stampede, this rush, this din, in the midst of that, the quiet voice and question of God is gently posed. Is there anyone here who yearns for life and desires to see good days? Let's return to the text of St. Benedict. He continues, quote, If you hear this question and your answer is, I do, then God directs these words to you. I'm going to pause again before hearing the words of God that St. Benedict offers next. If your answer is, I do, it seems easy at first. God asks, is there anyone here who yearns for life and desires to see good day? Who wouldn't answer, I do? Well, I'm suggesting that we live in a multitude, a culture that seems not to care. For it's God who is posing the question. Do you really want to listen to God? Do you really want to say, I do, to God? God is about to speak. Duck! <laughs> Get ready. Or hide if you can. Do you mean it when you say to God, I do? Well, so that we can read on. Let's presume that you do mean it as best you can. As best you can. And then let's listen to the answer that St. Benedict next formulates, taking his words still from the psalm and placing them still in the mouth of God. Quote, if you hear this 
and your answer is, I do, God then directs these words to you. Listen. If you desire true and eternal life, keep your tongue free from vicious talk and your lips from all deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Let peace be your quest and aim. End quote. The message of God continues in the Holy Rule, but let's pause to digest this much. For life and to see good days, we must do something. It can be simply put, even if not simply done. God says, keep your tongue free from vicious talk and your lips from all deceit. This is not happening in the multitude. Is it happening in you? Don't let the multitude be your excuse, for it's not happening in you. God is searching among the multitude for someone, for anyone, who really longs for what we were made for in his image and likeness. And there is more that the individual who responds can do. And I don't say must do, as if to say you damn well better do it or you'll be damned. No, I say can do. Because the Lord is inviting and he will help. But something else is this. God says, turn away from evil and do good. Let peace be your quest and aim. Maybe you're thinking, no, I can't really do that. But the Lord would not invite if he did not intend to help. Listen to what follows. St. Benedict moves from the psalm to a passage from Isaiah, but still always simply delivering God's word into this present context. He says this, quote, Once you have done this, God says, my eyes will be upon you and my ears will listen for your prayer and even before you ask me I will say to you here I am God saying to me here I am even before I ask God saying to me, here I am. Isn't this what my heart and yours is longing to hear? Isn't this what every human heart in the troubled multitude longs to hear? St. Benedict himself says as much in what follows in the rules. He says, addressing his monks, what, dear brothers, could be more delightful than this voice of the Lord calling to us? See how the Lord in his love shows us the way to life. We should know in this monastic vision of things how much initiative 
is attributed to God. It is He who is searching for us, not the other way around. It is He who says, here I am, even before we ask. And for St. Benedict, the deepest sense of life is located in our response to this divine initiative. In other words, the condition for living well our human existence, the condition for fulfilling a particular role or vocation, the condition for doing something beautiful for God with our lives, is not so much a set of capacities or qualities or right attitudes or stunning talents. It's rather, more simply, a yearning for life and a desire to see good days. It is grasping that this yearning is implanted in the depths of my being by the God who made me. And it is responding in our troubled world to good news, namely the good news that God is seeking for just such people who are yearning for life. And God is longing to say to each one, Here I am. Perhaps all this sounds too easy, too sweet, unreal, naive. Life isn't at all this easy. And today's troubled world needs something much more sturdy than a religious pep talk. Well, I'm not giving you a pep talk. I'm announcing the good news. I'm announcing the gospel. We are not the inventors of the gospel. We don't make it happen. God does. But we are entrusted with announcing it, testifying to it, risking to trust in it. So where is the problem? Why isn't any of this easy when somehow it should be, when we long for this kind of simplicity? Let's dig a little more deeply into what St. Benedict has said so far. In just a few short lines, he has put into clear relief three fundamental elements of the mystery of the human person in relationship to God. These elements are, first, a question posed by God. Is there anyone here who yearns for life and desires to see good days? Second, there is the response from some actual person who says, I do. And third, there is response of God to the response of the person. God says to that one, here I am. Yet we must not think of this here I am of God as some lucky prize or reward for having had the good sense to say I do to the question. The mystery is deeper. And we, the multitude, have somehow lost sight of it. For in fact, God's saying here I am is what lies at the origin of the whole created order. And more deeply, 
at the origins of the creation of the human person formed in God's own image and likeness. God has created beings like ourselves. Beings designed originally to see a marvelous world about us and to stand in awe of it and to hear the world as God's whispering to us, here I am. God has created beings like ourselves designed originally to look at one another and to marvel and to fall in love, to connect deeply and enjoy and to hear again in that experience of the beauty of the other, God whispering, here I am. It was all meant to be spontaneous, natural, pure, innocent. But we have fallen. And we hear God's voice with difficulty and only sporadically. The multitude, qua multitude, looks at the created world and exploits it and is destroying it. God is not noticed at all in this kind of use of his creation. The multitude, qua multitude, looks at one another and sees nobody. Only a mass of men and women hurrying about with faces never seen and eyes that never meet. Who could fall in love with a crowd? No one thinks of God when the masterpiece of his creation, the human person, is gathered in agitated mass. This is why St. Benedict himself, testifying to the good news in his troubled times, announces a new version of God's here I am. It is not the here I am of the origins, but rather the here I am of a God who is in search among the lost multitude for someone, anyone, who longs for what we were created for. So the question is that anyone here who yearns for life and desires to see good days is in fact launched by God as an appeal to conversion, as an invitation to recovery and to repentance, as a return to innocence, which his initiative is offering and makes possible. So now everything depends on whether or not someone can say, I do, in answer to God's offer. I do yearn for life and desire to see good days. The catch for us would be in saying, I. For you don't say I to no one. If so, you're only talking to yourself and you are left to yourself. Good luck. No. I say I to a you. And in this case, I am saying I because someone has said you to me. 
And I'm answered. And here is what is utterly noteworthy, to say the least. Here is what is astonishingly good news. It is God who is speaking. It is God who says, you, to me. Can I really utter my I as a free response to his question? If I do, I live. I find life. I see good days. God is immense. More. Infinite, which is more than immense. God is all holy. Who can stand in God's presence? And yet, sweet and gentle and courteous is God's approach to us. He never overwhelms, never imposes, always leaves us free. God even lets it seem to us that our yearning for life and our desire to see good days has its origin in ourselves and not in Him. But that seeming is not a mistake. It's God's gift to us. It is our liberty, our free will, our ability to choose. The book of Deuteronomy reports God is saying, Behold, I place before you today death and life. Therefore, choose life. But the drama lies in the fact that we don't have to choose life. God's saying, here I am, is at the origin of the world and at the origin of our existence. But the mechanism of desire and choice is given us by God as a gift that lets us respond yes or no to God who addresses us. And whatever I respond, it will be I saying I to God. Either I say, I do choose life. Or I say, as Satan did in his own fall, I will not serve. This answer to God, this I pronounced by me in response to God, determines every person's existence. And God defers to our choice because God does not impose. If God were to impose, it would not be love that is offered us by God, nor would it be love from us that could be offered in return. It would not be a relationship. Every person's answer determines his or her existence, one's life in the world, who one is. If I say to God, who offers, I yearn for life and desire to see good days, and I will follow the way you show me, then I become the person that God designed me to be. That is, a person in relationship with God. 
a person in love with God. Because I see that God first loved me and gives me life. I become a person in love with the world God created and in which he placed me as my home. I am careful of this world and joyful in its beauties. And I become a person in love with other persons because I recognize them too as summoned and challenged by the same kind of dramatic choice that determines my own existence. I love actual people whom I come across in the course of my own life unfolding. But in principle, I am disposed to honor and love all persons, for we all share this common dignity. I'm talking about what the Bible says we are, the image and likeness of God. It's a choice. I've said it, life is a choice. True and eternal life, as St. Benedict calls it, is a choice. This is St. Benedict's teaching, based in the scripture itself. And the monastic practices and way of life he formulated in his rule are a program. He calls it a school. A program or a school where we learn to choose rightly where we can recover from mistaken choices and where we live in a relationship with the created world and with one another in the way God designed. It is a way of life patient of human weakness, patient of the legacy of bad choices which we all inherit from the history of our race. Nonetheless, it is a way of life that consistently corrects these with gentle disciplines and admonitions which refuse to let us fool ourselves. Benedict also calls his monastic instructions a process and a way of life. And he promises that in following the instructions, life grows sweeter and ever more precious. He says this, quote, As we progress in this way of life and in faith, we shall run on the path of God's commandments, our hearts overflowing with the inexpressible delight of love. End quote. And dear friends, I have described for you some of the deep structures of St. Benedict's monastic rule. These deep structures have had their impact on more than the monks who actually lived in the monasteries. I said that this monastic life turned out to be the seedbed and driving force of much that is healthy and wise in the culture of the Middle Ages and beyond. In short, Benedict's monasticism was the driving force of the culture of Christian Europe, and so derivatively of much of our own culture. 
But of course everyone knows that these Christian cultures are dying. I spoke of the evidence. I spoke of what we look like as a culture, a mass of people moving around our globes, seeing nobody. Our culture lives as if God did not exist and as if God did not address us. I suggested that Benedict's vision of monastic life is an antidote to such a pathology. It could bring health to the individual and it can contribute also to the health of the culture as a whole. Let me finish by summarizing the hopeful message in St. Benedict's own words, which we have pondered together this evening. Quote, Seeking his workmen in a multitude of people, the Lord calls out to him and lifts his voice, saying, Is there anyone here who yearns for life and desires to see good days? If you hear this question and your answer is, I do, then God directs these words to you. If you desire true and eternal life, keep your tongue free from vicious talk and your lips from all deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Let peace be your quest and aim. Once you have done this, God says, my eyes will be upon you and my ears will listen for your prayers. And even before you ask me, I will say to you, here I am. What dear friends is more delightful than this voice of the Lord calling to us? See how the Lord in his love shows us the way of life. free to continue with your dessert. Uh, if you'd like, don't feel you need to rush away. Uh, but it's been uh, an absolute delight to have you uh, all with us here this evening. Thank you.